This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome. My name is Mark Tui, your host uh, this afternoon. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you once again. You can interact with us on this program, live radio at 71010. Text me on your mobile device, and uh, we'll open the phone lines here and there throughout the show. The uh, number to call, as always, for this program, 855-633-1010. Off the top, I wanted to talk just briefly about healthcare, Uh, but uh, coming up in the program, I'm going to ask you whether you agree with people in Ontario Because a new poll says that more than half, almost 60% of Ontario residents would support the idea of making education workers an essential service. I think it makes sense. I think the time has come. I think the time came for a long time. Uh, It's been that time for a long time. In fact, I would go at one further, and I'll make that argument when I uh, take your calls on it a little bit uh, later in the show. I would argue that all government workers should be essential because if they're not essential... Why are they getting paid with my money? I don't think we should have any non-essential government workers. If, we're, if you're not essential, find another job. There's lots of them out there. Anyway, that's uh, coming up later in the program. We'll also uh, talk about uh, what doctors in Canada say we could be doing right now or in short order to help with a health care crisis. So we're going to kind of we'll book in the program with, uh, with health care. And in between, we'll check in on what's happening in Ukraine and Russia in a situation where a Ukrainian village is kind of cleaved down the middle in terms of people who suspect that their neighbors were working for the other side Depending on, you know, whichever that other side was, some think that their neighbors were working with the Ukrainians against the Russians. Some think that their neighbors were working with Russians against Ukrainians. Uh, The town has changed hands a couple of times during this war. We'll talk with a Washington Post correspondent about what's happening there, plus get an update on the rest of the situation in Russia. But I wanted to start by talking about what you and I need to do to fix health care. Because I've worked in government, I've worked in the private sector, I've worked as a political staffer, and I watched what happened this week when Canada's provincial health ministers got together to come up with a strategy to fix a healthcare system that we all agree is broken. It's on its knees. It's crumbling. We've talked about this earlier in the week, the last time I was here. And at that time, we were hopeful that there were grounds for an agreement. The federal health minister had hinted that he was ready to come to the table with more federal money for the provinces to spend on health care. Health care is a provincial responsibility in our constitution, but it's funded through federal taxes. So they also always argue about who actually needs to pay what in that agreement. The premiers say the federal government only pays about uh, 22-25%. They say it should be 33-35%, uh, but of what? Anyway, we were hopeful the last time that we spoke that they were going to come to an agreement, and then everything fell through because politicians will politic. Uh, Tony Tedesco, clip 14. Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos explaining that Federal money needs to come with conditions. We would do this if provinces and territories are prepared to commit to a meaningful expansion of the sharing and use of common key health indicators and to therefore build 
a world-class health data system for our country. So the feds come to the table saying, yeah, we'll give you more money, but you've all got to agree on some conditions. On the other side of the table, the health ministers represented in this conference by B.C. Minister of Health Adrian Dix, stressing that there's urgency. We need the money now. We'll sort out the conditions later. This is going to be a difficult winter because we're going to see, and we've seen this in the southern hemisphere already, significant increases and challenges related to respiratory illnesses, including, but not limited to, COVID-19. So, did it work? No, it didn't work. It fell apart. Both sides pointing fingers at the other, but that's what politicians do. We have a problem with healthcare. You and I know that. Everybody knows that. What you and I have to come to grips with is the fact that politicians are not going to be the solution. Because politicians can only do one thing. They can only politic. Even politicians who are also doctors who've worked in the system can't stop politicking. An emergency room physician who's also an Ontario member of provincial parliament, Dr. Adil Shamji, he's a liberal member of provincial parliament. He spoke in Toronto on News Talk 1010 with John Moore in the morning explaining what was wrong with the emergency rooms, what was causing the backlog, the, the overwhelming mass of patients there, and listen how long he can explain it before he reverts to type and jumps into politics. Our healthcare system is more strained than ever before because of the state that it's in. We have a desperate shortage of healthcare workers. We have an enormous uh, diagnostic and procedural surgical backlog. We don't have enough beds. And these are things that have been accumulating over the last, these are problems that have been worsening over the last two and a half years of the pandemic. It doesn't help that there has been a premier and a minister of health that have been absent for you know literally months at a time. It doesn't help that there's been a very unambitious plan from the government uh, that was updated on August 18th. And this data shows that it has not made any impact whatsoever in trying to change the trajectory of our healthcare system. You can hear him pivot, literally. He says, this problem has been building over, and then he realizes, I'm not just an emergency room doctor, I'm a member of the Liberal Party, a seated member of provincial parliament. I have to blame this on the government. And he changes the frame of reference to, well, we've seen it get worse in the last two years, because before that, it was his party in power. So you can't blame us. We've got to blame them because that's what politicians do. They can't have a conversation even behind closed doors. I've been in those conversations. They can't talk about solutions because the minute one opens her mouth, the others just start thinking about how they can poke holes in that argument. They never listen. They never try to build it. And when we teach high school kids, when I teach university kids, when we teach business leaders, even middle school kids, how to solve problems, we talk about things like brainstorming, where you, like, let's generate a bunch of innovative, creative ideas that could possibly fix something, in this case, healthcare. Let's just throw them up on the whiteboard. Let us not judge them. We can't have a conversation in Canada about healthcare without judging everything as it's being said. We need to stop that. We can't rely on doctors because experts have a very narrow frame of reference. They're only looking at their area of expertise. That's what they know. That's how they got to be an expert on it. They don't think of the repercussions beyond what's in front of them because that's not their job. We can't really even listen to the heads of different associations, people that should know some of the answers, the head of the doctor's association, the nurse's association, the hospital's association, the chiropractors, all of the people that have expertise. 
they all have a vested interest. They're there to represent and to preach what they've agreed to preach. They are not going to fix this for us. You know who's going to fix this for us? You, me, us, and quite frankly, talk radio. This is a forum where you and I can talk about ideas and let's not shoot each other down. Let's put the ideas out there. There are some great ones. We talked uh, on radio a week or so ago with a London, Ontario surgeon who said, look, we don't need to do every, you know, orthopedic surgery in the same general purpose operating room that does heart transplants and, you know, toenail fungus removal. We can specialize, take them out of the hospital for ambulatory. We can't treat everybody there, but we can treat these ones there, get some out of the system, speeds it up. There's a huge backlog. Good idea. Put it on the board. How could we make that work? Could we put nurses and doctors in ambulance helicopters? Good idea. Put it on the board. Let's see if we could make that work. What difference would it make? Could we take the paramedics? Could we put them in the hospitals? Good idea. Put it on the board. Let's not shoot it down. Let's think about how it could work. We need much more of that. And quite honestly, as a guy who's worked the last 10 years in talk radio, I think this is the place to do it. Because when you call in and we talk about something, people are listening. Those people include politicians and decision makers and the heads of associations and their communication staff and their political advisors. Decision makers listen. So when you say you're willing for them to take a risk, to give something a try to see if it works, that gives them the freedom to actually do something because they're terrified they're going to get it wrong. And we need them to be less risk averse and more action oriented. Talk radio, you, me, could be the answer. Stay tuned right here, the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I grew up in British Columbia. My name is Mark Tui. I'm your host this afternoon. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I grew up in BC. I've moved uh, mostly with the Army. I've lived in about five of the different provinces. been in Ontario for the last many years. And nothing just galls me more than... Strikes. I hate strikes. Public sector strikes. They just, you know, you're holding the public hostage when you go on strike. And yet, it is the principal tool, quite often, that's available to unions to bargain collectively. We set that up. We created that system. So we can't argue too much with it. But I think there's a better way. And I think if you uh, live in Ontario and you just went through a two-day illegal Friday and Monday strike of education support workers that was called off when the government backed down from its uh, position of imposing a contract uh, with the notwithstanding clause to make sure that it gets through the courts, uh, you're, you're happy that your kids are back in school. But here's the thing. I've been involved in, in bargaining. I've never sat at the table. I've been one of the political strategists behind the scenes. And there is an art, there's a dance, there's a theater of the macabre, quite frankly, when it comes to labor negotiation, there's a certain way that things are done. And when you do them out of sequence, bad things happen. And that's really what happened in Ontario. But the same thing has happened in every other province. I remember living in British Columbia when they had uh, the Solidarity Movement. And uh, basically all the public sector and many of the private sector unions walked off the job in essentially a general strike to support the uh, public workers union. 
And the people pay the price for that. The innocent taxpayers pay the price for that. There's got to be a better way. A poll out in Ontario by Maru uh, Public Opinion Polling, Maru Research, Maru Public Opinion, I think that's the name of their company. Uh, they put out a poll this morning that says 60% of Ontarians, 59% to be precise, of Ontarians say it's time the provincial government made education an essential service, which would ban strikes by teachers and all other education workers and force them to settle labor disputes through binding arbitration. I am 100% in agreement with that. Where do you stand? one 855 I say it's well past time. I want to hear, if you agree with me, give me a call. 855-633-1010, because it's important that our decision makers and union leaders hear your voice, because they are listening to this program. They listen to it across the country. I know that, because they call afterwards and say, hey, I didn't like what you said about me, or hey, yeah, that was a good point. If you don't think they should, if you think essential services legislation for education workers in your province would be a bad idea, also give me a call, 855-633-1010, because they'll want to hear that. Because they're not going to make a decision unless they think it's safe politically to do so. This poll that says 60% of Ontarians would support it starts to give the government the idea that they might be able to do this without getting punished. Here's why I think it's a good idea. I thought making something an essential service would automatically increase the cost of it. I argued that to Rob Ford when he was running to be mayor of Toronto. He disagreed. He wanted to make the Toronto Transit Commission an essential service. He said he didn't think it had to increase the price, and he thought even if it did increase the price, it would be worth it to avoid a transit strike which cost millions of people, a million people a day use transit, tens of thousands of dollars in lost work. It cost our economy millions of dollars a day when transit was on strike. He said the cost of paying people a little bit more if we had to far, far is eclipsed by the cost of the economy of, of that. I think the education workers are the same thing. And quite frankly, I would go even further and say all public employees should be essential servants because if they're not essential, why do they have a job? If you do something that's not essential and the taxpayer pays for you, why does the taxpayer pay for that? We should only be doing, government should only be doing things that only government can do. I say start with making all education workers in every province an essential service, force them, take away their right to strike, take away the employer's right to lock out the employees. That means they have to keep bargaining. There are a couple of myths. One, that it costs more. doesn't have to. Two, and it didn't. When Rob Ford made the Toronto transit system an essential service, the cost of settlements did not go up. Proof of the point. They have to keep bargaining because they both want to have influence on the outcome. If it goes to arbitration, they lose control. They don't want to do that, so they generally keep bargaining. Let's hear from you. one 855 Andrew, you're in Toronto. Yeah, hi, Mark. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I agree with you uh, in principle. Uh, there would be one caveat I'd put on it. It would be that when you're formulating that uh, calculation of what the wages should be within the public service, we bring into, uh, into play private sector agreements as well. Right now, that's not the case as far as I know. And then if it is, uh, if it does become binding arbitration, 
it becomes what I call pig to the trough. All they do is compare themselves to other public service uh, settlements that have happened within the province, and the, the escalation of, of wages goes up. You can see that in certain unions already, whether they be police services or or firefighters or any, anything, they always compare themselves. So if there's a comparative in the private sector, you build that into the into the binding arbitration as well. That's an interesting thought. Thanks very much, Andrew. The question of how you arbitrate is the real critical path here, because there are different ways of doing it. We haven't always done it well, but we could do it better. Mike in Windsor. Go ahead, sir. Hey, Mike. Mike. Ian Windsor. I'm going to put him on hold. Can't find him. And go to another mic in Toronto. Mic number two, go ahead. Yes, hi. Good afternoon. I agree with your first caller, and I also would like the idea of them being an essential service as long as the ability to pay comes into account, which hasn't been what's been happening when things go to binding arbitration. Good point. Thanks very much, uh, Mike. That's, an inter- that's, that's another one of the common uh, you know, concerns about binding arbitration is, oh, well, in private sector, the arbitrator is required to look at the employer's ability to pay and sort of say, well, you have to, it has to be reasonable. The same rule holds true in the public sector. Now, some arbitrators sometimes have argued, well, the taxpayer could pay an unlimited amount of money. But that's not usually what happens. It, it just really isn't. It's kind of one of those red herrings that people throw out there because there's different ways of doing arbitration. Quite often, they go to something called last best offer where both sides, if they can, they keep bargaining. They keep collective bargaining as long as they can. And if they absolutely cannot come to an agreement, neither side is allowed to kick the other one out or go on strike. So they have to go to an arbitrator. They choose together. They both have to agree on who the arbitrator is so they both know what they're getting into. And often in last best offer, both sides have to put their best offer on the table and then the arbitrator picks one. So it has to be, they have to be reasonable in their offer, and it generally tends to work out. Peter, in Ottawa, I think it's a good idea. What do you say? Hello? Hey, Peter, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, I think you're looking at it just from one side, which is the cost side, and arbitration is not going to necessarily lower costs because it's meant to reproduce what a fair bargaining process would have. But the other side is that if it's an essential service, then there's an obligation on the government as well to fund it adequately and to make sure there's enough staff there to provide that essential service. Yeah, absolutely, example, 100%. Healthcare, we're not seeing that at all yep. right now. We're seeing the shortages. Thanks, so Peter. I, I, I want to squeeze one more person in before Peter makes a point. I mean, this isn't the solution to all problems of government. It's just how do you avoid strikes? Liz and Etobicoke, last word for you. We've got about 30 seconds. And then we're going to take okay. a break. We'll take more calls. Okay. I'd like to say that they should make an agreement with the teachers and all of the unions right now, and uh, the particular one right now, and then immediately afterwards open it up so that parents can go to charter schools, yeah, that's a different topic, but I, I hear what you're yep. saying. Thanks very much. I don't want to go down that path. I'm just talking about essential services status because we can only deal with so many issues at once without going down all of the different rabbit holes. Uh, I like Liz's idea to some extent. There's pros and cons to it. We'll take a listen. When we come back, we're going to talk with somebody who's an expert in this, and we'll put that question to him. Does it always have to be more expensive? Can we make the arbitrator consider the ability to pay? 
keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. My name is Mark Tui. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. We're talking about essential service worker status for the education sector. A poll released today by Maru Public Opinion says that 60% of Ontarians would support making the education sector. These are high, This is public sector uh, education, so high school, elementary school, middle school, uh, all of the employees there, whether they are custodial staff or administrators or teachers or education assistants, everybody who works in education, an essential service. The difference between that and what happens now is slight, really. I mean, basically what it means is you still have to bargain collectively. You still are represented by the union. The government still tries to get the best deal for the taxpayer. The union still tries to get the best deal for the union members. But both sides are robbed of their biggest weapons. The employers cannot lock out employees. And the workers cannot go on strike. So they're forced. Somebody said on the text board at 71010, you can interact with me, said what they should do is just lock them in a room until they come to an agreement. That's kind of what happens when you're an essential service worker. If you absolutely positively cannot agree and it's dragging on and there's no hope, then you can go to arbitration. And there's usually a system set up in agreement between both sides on how that is going to work. The big fears with that that people raised, including callers, is that, well, that's going to raise the price. We can't afford it. Arbitrators always side with the union. Is that true? Didn't happen in Toronto when they made the transit system an essential service. So maybe it isn't true. My guest will shed some insight on that. He is Senator Tony Deasick, Dean. Pardon me. He's a Canadian senator, has been. Uh, since uh, 2016. And uh, prior to that, though, and where he becomes interesting to us in this conversation, is uh, he was Secretary of the Cabinet, head of the Ontario Public Service for a number of years, and he's a professor, or was a professor, at University of Toronto School of Public Policy and Governance, where he taught about exactly this kind of thing. He's not only walked the walk, but he has talked the talk. Senator Dean, welcome to News Talk today. Thanks very much, Mark. Happy to join you. So the conversation here is around essential service status. Uh, setting aside your opinion on that, what's your expertise, your knowledge of the situation? People say, well, if you make educators an essential service, that will immediately inflate the cost of all future agreements. Is that actually what the record shows? I think the record is much more mixed than that. Um, and I think if we step back for a moment, I would say it, it's not unusual for us to be having these sorts of conversations when we have a very significant labour dispute, particularly in the public sector, but in some cases in the private sector, such as in rail or ports operations or shipping. Um, these, these are perennial issues that arise. Um, look, the first thing I would say is that there, there, there is... Um, a sort of access to arbitration um, in the education system when uh, the school year is in jeopardy or, or significant courses are in, in jeopardy. Under the Education Labor Relations Act, a minister can um, ask a, a commission, uh, the Education Relations Commission, for advice about how to resolve that dispute. And um, that's usually, that usually happens a number of weeks into, um, into strikes. Uh, so it's and 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 the and the resolution of that um, th that obviously comes out of it is generally some form of, of arbitration. So 
This is not uh, a system of collective bargaining where arbitration has not been used or is not available in certain circumstances. Does it lead to higher costs? I don't think so necessarily. The experience is mixed. But what I can say is that generally speaking, both employers and unions are wary of moving to a system of, of resolving disputes by permanent arbitration mechanisms because you are having decisions made for you. In many cases, not just about money, but in terms of working conditions and benefits that, that are best known to the workplace parties themselves. And, and when arbitrators wade into those tertiary issues, that is where sometimes costs can es- escalate quickly. So that's an interesting point, and we focus uh, in the public uh, forum quite often on the financial, the dollars and cents, but there are usually other factors at play that are being negotiated. Uh, One of uh, the radio hosts uh, on the iHeartRadio Talk Network this morning was saying, well, you know, arbitration is not good because management can usually get a better deal, but in collective bargaining, both sides ultimately have to agree uh, to the deal. So I'm not sure that it's true that management always extorts, you know, a better price uh, without arbitration. I think arbitration probably sometimes one side wins, the other side wins the other time, but but it usually comes down somewhere in the middle, and there are different ways to arbitrate. There certainly are. Um, you can uh, have a straight arbitration. You can have mediation arbitration where the arbitrator has an ability to mediate for a while before she or he makes a decision. There's a final offer selection arbitration, which is a high-risk version of arbitration where the arbitrator picks one side or the other. But but generally speaking, um, an arbitrator confronted with a difficult dispute in in any sector, uh, arbitrators are going to look at the same things. They're going to look at prevailing economic conditions. They look at comparator organizations, they'll focus on increases in similar organizations or, or sectors. And, and it's not the case that arbitration always results in, um, in higher costs that might have been obtained under a right-to-strike model. Now, a lot of people uh, make hay with the concept that, well, in the public sector, arbitrators will not consider the ability to pay of the employer because they look at the taxpayer as an unlimited pocket. And so that's where the escalation in costs can arise. But surely, if the government you know, has the ability to order people back to work and shapes the laws of the land, there would be a way to make sure that that, uh, I mean, there's got to be legal ways to set up arbitration in advance so that, you know, there would be some reason applied by arbitrators. Plus, don't both sides have to agree on who the arbitrator is going to be? Well, in some cases, they're given that choice. In some, in, in other cases, that decision is made for them. Even when the decision is being made for them, I think it's not unusual for them to be quietly consulted on uh, somebody that they both feel comfortable with. And that's, um, that's, a, that's a pretty good practice to, to, to follow, I think. Um, so, um, but, but arbitrators, uh, arbitrators have tough jobs, um, you know, and the best arbitrations, I suppose the fairest arbitrations are where both sides walk away a little bit unhappy. Um, if if uh, if somebody claims a, a big win out of an arbitration, and sometimes they might try to make the best of it, um, you know that 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 may not be helpful. Um, my sense is that that arbitrators try to look at the totality of the circumstances, 
and and operate within a frame of reason and evidence, uh, and that and that will include ability to pay. I, I don't. I mean, there are examples of ability to pay being a factor in public sector arbitrations. How big a factor that is in the public sector? How big a factor is it in the private sector? I'm not really sure. I think people can get um, uh, either uh, excited or or disappointed about ability to pay, but it's one factor in in a constellation of factors that an arbitrator is going to look at. Uh, Senator Tony Dean, I've only got about uh, 45 seconds here, but you used to uh, be the top uh, civil servant in Ontario. From an economic uh, big-picture strategy point of view, might it be that even if it costs a little more under arbitration, sometimes the savings to the economy and the wear and tear on taxpayers might be worth it? Uh, that is that is a uh, a line of thought that uh, political leaders and ministers of labour and ministers of education have to have to think through. Um, it's always situational. Um, I'm I'm not going to um, say that one size fits all here. Uh, and there's a there's a there's a political calculus here along with economic and. Um, and uh, quality of, of education factors to consider. Senator Tony Dean, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate your insight. Thanks a lot, Mark. Bye-bye. Senator Dean was uh, formerly a professor at the School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Toronto and uh, continues to work there as a distinguished senior fellow. And he was the uh, man in charge of the Ontario Public Service Secretary to Cabinet in Ontario for many years. When we come back, hey, tomorrow's Remembrance Day. Don't forget. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So tomorrow is Remembrance Day. And today, my name is Mark Tui. Tomorrow it will still be Mark Tui, uh, but it will be Mark Tui on Remembrance Day, and I will not be speaking with you. I get to speak to you today. Tomorrow, I will be teaching a class at University of Guelph Humber through, I think the class starts at 9.50 and it ends at 12.30, which is the normal time for a Remembrance Day service. I don't know what they're going to do at the university. I know it's a regular workday because I live in Ontario. Guelph Humber is a university in Ontario. And in Ontario, we don't care about the work dead. Well, okay, so we care about the work dead. But we haven't cared enough about them to make it a statutory holiday. Where I grew up in British Columbia, it was a statutory holiday. It still is a statutory holiday. Ontario is one of the few provinces where it isn't. I think it should be. Because all of the arguments I've heard from everybody in Ontario about why it isn't and why it should never be are lame. People in Ontario argue that, well, if you made it a holiday, you gave people the day off, then no one would go to a service. They would just go golfing. It's November. They would just go shopping. It's a holiday. They would just not be thinking about our veterans. Really? Is that what you do in British Columbia? Do you just take the day off and go golfing? Because it is British Columbia. Quite often you can go golfing in November. I seem to remember growing up in BC, I had the same school education on Remembrance Day. We had the same school assembly about Remembrance Day. We had the same in-school service they have in Ontario, but we didn't have it on the 11th of November. We had it on the last school day before 
the 11th of November. And then on the 11th of November, we all had the day off so that if we wanted to, we could actually go to a real cenotaph and see real veterans and pay our real respects. You cannot do that in Ontario because you have to work. I have to work tomorrow. I'm not that happy about it. I think it's dumb. I think Ontario is dumb. I think it should be a statutory holiday. And I know that costs business money. But if there's anything worth giving up a day of shopping, a day of labor for, it probably is this. That's my thoughts. Post-pandemic, we're returning to a little bit of normal life around Remembrance Day. Tomorrow at the National War Memorial in Ottawa, the Prime Minister won't be there because he's off doing Prime Minister stuff on the other side of the planet. You might think that he should be there. Maybe he shouldn't be there. Prime Ministers sometimes have to work on that day because it's not a holiday in Ontario, so they have to be on the job. Well, normally the Prime Minister's job is at the War Memorial. Does it make a big difference if he's not there? I don't really think so. But I really hope he's doing something important wherever it is he happens to be and whatever he happens to be doing in Cambodia at the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and getting some value for Canada. One thing that will happen tomorrow is the Veterans Parade for the first time in two years will return. It will be led this year by retired Chief Petty Officer First Class Jake McDavid of the Royal Canadian Navy, and he thinks uh, it will be a very important day for the veterans who attend. It's rather shocking when you talk to families and veterans that have come from the Maritimes, come from Vancouver Island, to participate, and you know the cost that they've incurred, and it's a lifetime experience for them. So we try to make that experience memorable for everybody. And, you know, it is a memorable experience. For soldiers, it was always a work day because we always paraded at a cenotaph. And the day ended at the end of the service, and then we would go to the Legion. And quite frankly, that was fun. The beer was cheap. The veterans were amazing. We got to socialize and hear the same war stories we heard last year, but from fewer people because more and more of them had passed on. But it touched us. And now we have a whole new class of veterans in this country, people who served in Afghanistan, people who are my age or younger, young women, young men who've come back from military service. And I don't know that we do enough for them. We built massive cenotaphs across this country after the First World War. And we didn't build anything for the Second World War. Like, like think about it. That shocked me. I read a historical book by Tim Cook who pointed that out, that there are no monuments to the Second World War. We just chiseled people's names on the other side of the, the cenotaph and added 1939-44. We didn't build anything for, they didn't build any monuments. We built arenas and hockey rinks for the Second World War vets. And then not much for the Korean War vets. And what have we built for the Afghan vets? Well, we opened up something that was inside a building in Ottawa, and that didn't go well, so they moved it to another place that's way far away from where anybody will ever go. But yet we have tens of thousands of veterans in Canada alive right now from Canada's longest war. And I could tell you more battle honors, more history about the Boer War, where Canadians also fought in a foreign war that nobody ever heard of in a faraway place, 
than most Canadians could talk to about Afghanistan. Tom, in Montreal, I say this should be a statutory holiday. I'm not that, I'm not going to march on the, the, the halls of power, but I just think, yeah, it should be. What do you say? I say we remember them during our day, where we have a day, and they didn't. You know, when you think that six million Jews died in the Second World War, and Israel pauses for two minutes in the middle of a day to remember, during the day, you continue your life. You honor the dead by living the life they couldn't, but you remember them. Giving everyone a day off, paid, is an excuse to go shopping. It's an excuse to spend an extra day at the chalet. So you it say British not, Columbia, British is, Columbians are slack and idle. They're just taking the day off and they don't care. You know, I'm a firm believer in freedom and choice. And if people want to institute a paid holiday for everyone on Remembrance Day, good for them. But what you want and what you need and how you honor people is by actually pausing and remembering while you live your day, as opposed to, hey, I got a day off. What am I going to do on my day off? Yep. Thanks very much, Tom. I appreciate that. And that's the point of view of a lot of people that call in on talk radio that I talk to in Ontario, because quite frankly, they've grown up with this. They don't know any different. But they're shocked. One of the biggest complaints about making it a day off in Ontario is, oh, well, the kids will never learn. Well, I grew up in BC. I learned. And I also had a chance to go to a real cenotaph and see real veterans and really get that experience, something that most school kids in Ontario don't get the chance to do because they're in school standing in front of a cardboard cenotaph or a paper machine monument doing the same thing that I did in BC, but on Remembrance Day. Last word on this, I got about 15 seconds. Larry in Scarborough, holiday or no holiday tomorrow? What should it be? No holiday. You see, they fought for the country, we should work for the country. Many people don't really care. Maybe you feel different because people speak more kindly to you because you're a soldier. Maybe, that could be. Thanks very much, uh, Larry, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm not gonna win this argument. Uh, we have it every year. It's, uh, it's sort of a talk radio standby. But, uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, do we have time to play that uh, clip about the War Museum has uncovered three more Victoria Crosses, and uh, they're going to go on display. Peter Harris, uh, what clip is that? It's number 42, I think. And if it's just sitting in a safe deposit box, it's not doing anybody any good. So it just seemed like it was a better place for it to be is at the War Museum, where hopefully other people can see it and appreciate it and learn this story. There you go. That's the family of a uh, First World War soldier who won the Victoria Cross. They've given his uh, award to the War Museum where you might be able to go see it. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. This is Mark Tui. Pleasure to talk with you this afternoon. Started the program talking about how we need to drive the conversation, you and I, and talk radio. Quite frank, this is one of the things that talk radio can do very well. When talk radio works well, it does a great job driving the public conversation, getting your voice into the ears of decision makers, hearing what different people have to say, and 
Yeah, sometimes we pick fights and sometimes we stoke outrage. But really, when we're putting our public servant, our utility hats on, it's about getting a conversation, getting those ideas out there into the public forum so that we can discuss them, so that it makes it possible, it frees up decision makers to think about them, things that previously might have been unthinkable. Earlier, we were talking about essential service status for education workers. A new poll says you would, by and large, accept that idea. You have some concerns. We heard about them from you. And so do the listeners who are decision makers. Now let's turn our attention back to healthcare because, you know, let's look for great ideas. Let's look for new ideas. Let us not judge them immediately. Instead of saying, well, that won't work, let us say, well, how could that work? Putting ideas on the table uh, this afternoon, we're joined by Dr. Rose Zacharias. She's president of the Ontario Medical Association. And they talked uh, in uh, uh, recently, there's a piece in the Toronto Star today, talking about three things that Ontario's doctors think that the government could do to help make the healthcare system work better. Dr. Zacharias, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you so much. So let's run through these uh, three suggestions, because I'm a big believer in, like, brainstorming. Let's get these ideas out there, put them up on the board, and maybe they will spark ideas in other people and eventually come to some fruition. Idea number one that uh, your Ontario Medical Association putting forward is, is to somehow move more quickly to license doctors who've trained outside of Ontario, outside of Canada, so that we can put them into service now. How could we make that work? Absolutely. Very important to turn our attention to. We're dealing with doctor shortages. We have physician burnout at an all-time high. Upwards of 75% of doctors polled in Ontario say they're operating at a level of burnout. We're seeing physicians retire early, family doctors scaling back their practice. And all the while, we have in Ontario well over a million people who don't have a family doctor at all. And so reducing the barriers for internationally trained doctors to uh, do a practice-ready assessment so that, indeed, they would enter the healthcare system, you know, credentials and, and at the, the level of expertise that we expect Ontario's physicians to operate at would be a solution to our current doctor shortage. So we're speaking with our regulator, um, speaking with the government about implementing this solution. So how many doctors are there internationally trained that are waiting for their credentials to be assessed? How many doctors, if this work, do you think it could put into the system? So we think there are hundreds of doctors, and it's a little bit of a problem that we don't have the exact data. Um, that's also another problem we need to solve, but that might be another story. We do need the evidence and the data to act on these types of problems. But what we do know, speaking with our college, is that there are hundreds of these such internationally trained doctors not licensed to practice in Ontario that are living here right now that could enter the healthcare system, especially in the underserviced areas, or even provide relief for doctors that are looking to um, take a holiday, take a parental leave, um, and cover their practices while they're gone. So how, this is what we're looking at. So hundreds of uh, doctors that could probably qualify under a system if we had a better system. How fast do you think you could actually make this work if everybody agreed that it was the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about these practice-ready assessments, um, working with the college who would uh, oversee the regulation of such doctors in a matter of months. So usually it would be years, but now we're talking months. 
And, uh, and so this would be a much faster way of bringing doctors into the system. Okay, and your second idea that the Ontario Medical Association has put forward, I'm speaking with the president of the OMA, Dr. Uh, Rose Zacharias, uh, was to, uh, to address the millions of surgeries that have been backlogged during pandemic and suggesting that integrated ambulatory care centers that uh, could address this backlog, take the surgeries out of hospitals. We talked uh, on this program or another program I was hosting a week or so ago with a doctor in London, Ontario, who's done this for orthopedic surgeries for ambulatory uh, patients, patients who can walk into the operating room and walk out of the operating room. So it's not all the patients, but he can set up a smaller uh, operating theater that's very specialized and process so many people through that it takes the load off the hospital. Is that what you're talking about? And how would we make that happen? Yes. So you can appreciate that. I mean, right now we have well over 1 million surgeries backlogged while we were dealing with the crisis of COVID. Nobody's fault, but people who are waiting for their hip replacements, knee replacements, cataract surgeries and hernia repair surgeries have been put on the shelf, really, not getting those surgeries done. These people are getting sicker. They're dealing with more pain, suffering, the overlay of mental health issues and the ripple effect on caregivers and family members when people don't get the surgeries done that they've already been, already been referred to a surgeon for. And so if we bring those surgeries that are less complex, less acute than the emergency surgeries that are being done in hospital, we could offload the hospital um, in such a way that these surgeries would be done in these standalone surgical centers, still OHIP covered. We're not talking about a two-tier healthcare system. No one's paying out of the back of their pocket to get in line in the queue sooner. Um, So it would involve a centralized registry to get patients to the doctors that have availability and then in a streamlined way have that operating room prepared and ready to have a series of those surgeries done that are currently now just waiting in the queue to be done. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting idea. Is this something, do you think, uh, Doc, that could be pilot tested and, and that would take the risk out of it for people going, oh my God, this could ruin everything, but let's try it. Absolutely. We would want to see one or two or three of these centers. And there are some centers that exist already that are operating this way. We just know that we could have so much more and catch up on the backlog. I'm talking about over a million surgeries that are waiting to be done and we need to catch up. I don't have much time, but your third idea, I've literally got 60 seconds for you, was to increase the investment in community care, hospice and palliative care. So people who don't need to be in the ER because we can't do much more for them there have a place to go if they can't go home. Absolutely. Palliative care, we need that investment. We need about 1,300 hospice beds in Ontario to provide that level of care to people who are at end days of life. And we have about 270 of those beds. We need more of those beds in the community. These are people who are end of life, vulnerable, require comfort care, and are in acute care beds in hospital, which causes a problem for the hospital. It's not ideal for the family and the caregivers and the patient that's in that bed. And yet we do our best. How can we How could we make that happen? Is it just a matter of finding a space and putting a bed in it, or are we short the people who would care for those people? Both. We need to build the teams and equip the palliative care teams to be robust and able to be in, you know, the long-term care settings and their home settings in order to have these types of 
caregiving situations to really go to where the patient is as opposed to bringing the patient into the hospital to be cared for. That's a much better way to care for people. Dr. Rose Zacharias, president of the Ontario Medical Association, thanks for joining us today and sharing some of your ideas. Put them up on the board. Let's figure out how we can get these things done. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. These may not be the final solutions, but maybe they spark an idea. Maybe they will work as presented. Maybe they're worth testing. We've got to push our leaders to get off their backsides, to take a risk, to give things a try. Some of these are actually proven. We know that they work. We just are afraid to implement them. We need to stop being afraid. We're going to talk about a fascinating program when we come back. You can help out. Staying on the story, News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, I'm Mark Tewitt. It's great to speak with you again today. Just wrapping up the last segment, we were talking about uh, putting new ideas on the whiteboard for healthcare. We've got to get over this, yeah, but response to every new idea. We had it on the text board. Yeah, but somebody texted in saying, well, you need nurses. We can't do any of that stuff without nurses. Yeah, but. No, I don't want any yeah buts. I want, so how do we make this work? Do we really need more nurses? Maybe we do, but what do we need them to do? The Canadian military, every military in the world, runs a very complex, advanced trauma care system on the battlefield under fire that takes soldiers from a critical injury under fire in combat, moves them all the way through to, you know, back into Canada where they're cared for. And there are very few nurses and very few doctors, mostly medics, who take weeks not years to train. Can we learn something from that? How could we do something like that? You know, I don't really need a family doctor most of the time. I do need one when I need one, but mostly what I need is a healthcare manager to help manage all the different places that I have to go and the appointments that I need and the introductions and the passage of information. Is there a different way we could do that? Those are the kind of conversations we need to have and we need to stop reacting to, yeah, but my interest, no. How could we make that idea work? Consider the ideas on their merits. Let's take a few risks. Let's give some things a try. We might be surprised. Speaking of things that surprised me, uh, I saw a piece in the Ottawa Citizen last night, and I thought, that is the coolest project. And so I wanted to talk to you about it uh, today. The Ottawa Citizen, for 12 years now, has run a Remembrance Day project called We Are the Dead. And every day, or every Remembrance Day, at 11 minutes after the 11th hour, they publish the name of one of Canada's war dead, and they ask you and me to, to do some research and find out who this person is. And they put together a profile on him, and it, invi- it invites and it interacts with people, engages people from all over, genealogists, uh, you know, family members, amateur sleuths and historians. And here to tell us more about it is Blair Crawford, reporter for the Ottawa Citizen. Blair, this just sounds so cool. Who's this year's name? Are you allowed to give us a sneak peek? No, no sneak peeks, uh, Mark. We'll find out at eleven eleven tomorrow. Um, as you as you mentioned in the in the lead in, there's there's a, a list of 119,531 war dead, and this project was started by Glenn McGregor, a former reporter at the Citizen, and so that name is tweeted out at 11 minutes past the hour. 
We'll find out at 11.11 tomorrow who we're working on, and we spend the rest of the day scrambling to find out uh, as much as we can about them and, and enlisting help from the public uh, to help us do that. This is so cool. So at 11.11 tomorrow, that's the hour of remembrance. This, this will come out not on the Ottawa Citizen website, but I can look for it on Twitter. What's the handle? It is uh, at We Are the Dead. And, uh, yeah, the name comes out, and you, if you search that, you'll see... You know, 100,000 names that have already been tweeted out uh, over the years. And so what happens then is there's a team, uh, Andrew Duffy, my colleague at The Citizen, uh, Lisa Twomanen, who's in our library department, and and other people. Uh, We dig into the war records, uh, genealogical records, and Ancestry.com to try and find out... uh, a bit of the pers- the story behind the person whose name we're working on and, and try and find relatives to speak to as well and, and fill in the, the blanks of what otherwise is just a, a name on a memorial. And so how do interested Canadians who follow at We Are The Dead on Twitter see the name? How can they help? Well, you'll see the name yourself if you follow that handle, but uh, also Andrew and I will be tweeting it out. It will be tweeted out by ottawacitizen.com, our, our handle. And then in, in the past, we've had... Um, such a range of, of people that we've examined. Some of them are, are, you know, one. I think the first one we did in 2011 was a soldier who died of cancer in a hospital, and then the last year's was uh, someone who died in the in the days after Normandy, and quite a, a remarkable story of an attack on a German position. You've had airmen. Uh, um, names have come up. Uh, most of them have been First World War vets because, of course, First World War was such a terrible uh, tragedy for Canadians, and so many Canadians were killed there. Now, how often, like, you guys are going to put the full court press on getting through all of the traditional sources of information, tracking down war records, archival information, the family. But how often do you actually get a useful tip from a member of the public who sort of sees the project and says, oh, yeah, I know something about him? Every every year, Mark. In fact, uh, it, it, there's a, a, some people who've been following us for years and and uh, are just experts in searching military records and uh, ancestry records. And within minutes, we're starting to get uh, uh, input in from the public, either through email or through Twitter. Uh, I mean, we couldn't have done this project before uh, the advent of social media and online records because that's that's that allows us to do in an afternoon really what would have taken months uh, before the internet. I'm talking with Blair Crawford. He's a reporter at the Ottawa Citizen, and they have a, an amazing uh, program uh, called We Are the Dead. And tomorrow at 11.11 uh, Eastern Time, they will uh, tweet out and uh, and amplify the name of one particular uh, Canadian veteran, Ward Dead, and that will start the clock. They're looking to gather as much information about this person as they possibly can. Their reporters will be searching, but if you follow, you can contribute. You can do your own research and contribute bits and pieces so they can build a profile. What's the deadline? When do we see the finished result? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. Our, our production uh, at the paper has changed this year, so we have very early deadlines to make a uh, uh, to get a story for the morning's paper, uh, Saturday's paper, will have to be finished by 4 p.m. So we only have a little uh, under five hours to do all this. This is a bit of a, an experiment for us this year because uh, in the past we've been able to go into the to the evening to work on it, and and we'll continue to work on to to hone and improve the online story past our print deadline. But we'll certainly be uh, under pressure tomorrow. 
So you you do get every year uh, useful and important bits of information from sort of amateur detectives uh, that uh, contribute online, general people like me, who say, hey, yeah, I know this, or my uh, that uh, same last name as my uncle, I know that he knew somebody, uh, his aunt is still alive. Uh, you could talk to her. Uh, how often do you get information? I'm always afraid of this whenever the police ask for information. How often do you get information that's just completely useless and takes you off the track given a four o'clock deadline? Well, there's, there's, uh, we, we have to sift through the, the information uh, carefully, of course. Um, it, it's interesting. Some people will, will email. I've already gotten emails today saying, here, can you do my relative? Uh, you know, here's his name and, and information. But, of course, no requests. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, we, we uh, have to do the person whose name we get at 11.11 tomorrow. But uh, one story remarkable, I think it was a couple of years ago, we managed to track down the great, great nephew of a soldier, Canadian soldier who had been killed at, uh, at the Battle of Ypres. And we found him. He'd just come home from the uh, memorial or the Remembrance Day service in, in England, where he'd gone to, to honor this relative and came home and, and uh, saw an email from us. And uh, so we spoke to him, having just come back from the Remembrance Day service. It was really remarkable. And, and that's just one example. There, there are many times that we've had uh, stories like that. So it's not like you only tweet out one name a year at 11.11. This project, We Are the Dead by the Ottawa Citizen, there are, there's an endless flow of names being uh, tweeted out and published on a regular basis, I think. How does that work? Well, in fact, it's not uh, endless. Uh, Glenn messaged me last night. He's the one who set up the uh, report. And in fact, we will come to the, the end of that 119,000 531 list of names in January of 2024, having started it in 2011. So in 13 years, we'll have worked through all of the, uh, the names of the war dead. So this year and next year will be the last that we're able to do this project, unless we, we run it, turn it over again. How often do you um, tweet names? Well, that, so the it tweets 24 names a day. Every hour at 11 past the hour, we are the dead, we'll tweet names. So, you know, I, I had a great uncle who was killed uh, in the month before Vimy Ridge, and I keep Googling his uh, his name or searching on Twitter with the we are the dead hashtag and, and his name to see if it's been tweeted. So my, my uh, dream is always one day that my uncle uh, Wilmot's name will come up as the one we're searching on November 11th. So the, the database odds, are, would be interesting. The database are all the war dead, and then it just every hour at 11 minutes past tweets out a different name. We're going to run out of those names, and you're not planning to renew it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just, I don't know what's going to happen after that. It's, it's not something I'd even thought about before. But, right. uh, Blair, you know, these, these are war dead going back to the Boer War, First World War, thanks, Second World War. Right thanks, Blair. i got to go, but that's fascinating. Check it out. Uh, we are the dead on Twitter, 11-11 tomorrow. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. This is Mark Tui. Great to speak with you. Yesterday in the war in Ukraine, Russia, we learned, had ordered a general retreat from the city of Kherson, where they have been taking uh, uh, pretty strong uh, 
fight. They had initially uh, conquered that area of Ukraine, occupied it with uh, Russian and allied uh, to Russia troops, and uh, slowly, in fact, well, maybe not so slow, but the Ukrainian uh, military has been pushing them back. Yesterday, uh, the city itself, uh, the Russian army ordered a withdrawal, leaving uh, that area for the Ukrainians to reoccupy make once again part of a contiguous uh, Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, the Americans reporting that there have been over 100,000 Russian military casualties in Ukraine, according to one U.S. general. But amongst all of this are the human stories. And in the Kherson region, not necessarily not the city itself, but a, uh, a small village nearby called Shevchenkivka, uh, 50 or so residents remained. The Russians uh, withdrew uh, earlier in this week, leaving the opportunity for Ukraine to push in. A truck arrives uh, with a load of food, finding the village divided, neighbor against neighbor in some cases. People who were sympathetic to the occupiers uh, and others who hold that against them. Here to tell us the story is uh, our guest, uh, Michael E. Miller, is the Sydney Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. Uh, Michael, welcome to News Talk today. Hey, thanks very much for having me. So this village of Shevchenkivka, uh, we have uh, the, the Russian forces have been pushed back and uh, the Ukrainian uh, army has uh, reoccupied it, but the village is somewhat divided. Tell us what's gone on there. Yeah, exactly. So this uh, this village uh, was uh, liberated about uh, a month ago now. That's when the Russian troops uh, fled and Ukrainian troops came in. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously it was for many in the village kind of a joyous moment to be liberated after seven months of occupation by Russian or Russian uh, kind of allied forces. But uh, what we found is that in the wake of that uh, liberation, you know, the town is very much divided. Uh, this is a village of uh, not very many people, about 50 people remaining, and you've got neighbors uh, who are no longer speaking to other neighbors, you know, friends who are no longer f friends with others because of these allegations that some people in the town uh, collaborated with the Russians and uh, the Russians did during the um, seven months that, that they uh, kind of held the town. Uh, is actually uh, not Russians per se, but um, some Ukrainian separatists from the Donetsk People's Republic, as it calls itself. Um, they were in control of this town, and they um, passed out money to many people in town. Uh, many people accepted it, uh, passed out food, um, and uh, all that has kind of created uh, kind of rancorous uh, uh, breaks within uh, you know, people who have been neighbors for decades. And Donetsk, uh, that region is, of course, uh, an area that was occupied by Russia in 2014 uh, under the pretense that, well, actually, they want to be part of Russia. And so Putin uh, basically created the impression, uh, at least in his words, that this was a, uh, a revolution and uh, Russia was supporting them. And clearly there were some people in those regions that, uh, that weren't happy with Ukraine, but really it was Russia's influence. Um, they continue to say that there are people in Ukraine, especially in these regions, that would rather be part of Russia. Does this feed into that narrative? Is there any truth uh, to that narrative in villages like this that are left divided? 
Uh, it's a great question. I mean, from my conversations with people in, in town, it certainly seems that some people did express openness, uh, a, a small minority of people in the town, but some did express openness to the idea of, you know, becoming part of Russia. Um, but again, it's really hard to say because these people were put in an impossible situation where their town was occupied. They have soldiers with guns, you know, in uh, in you know, trenches right outside of their house, literally in front of their house, you know, going down the street in armored vehicles. So, you know, how much of that is a genuine sympathy or alliance with Moscow and how much of it is just simply trying to survive in the middle of a war? Yeah, everybody is sympathetic when they have a gun pointed at you. Um, but and it's not a new story. I mean, this uh, we saw this in uh, in France in the Second World War, in the First World War, and in, in any occupied country. You know, they, you have to make that decision: survive or die. You know, be friendly to the occupier in order to last another day. But uh, let's switch gears uh, just a little bit. Uh, Michael Miller with the Washington Post, Kherson City is uh, an area where the Russian army has uh, at least announced that it is withdrawing. I don't know where it's at in terms of actually doing that. Is there much left there? The photos that I've seen from afar suggest that the city is in ruins. Is there anything there to liberate? You know, honestly, it's tough to tell because uh, it's been really hard to communicate with people in Kherson City. Um, so we've heard kind of, I've spoken to some people with relatives there who've said that, um, you know, there's been very little electricity, uh, very little running water, very little ability to communicate with people in the outside world. Um, we've also heard stories of Russian soldiers there during occupation, you know, violently pulling people off of public transport, strip searching them. Uh, you know, physically assaulting them and worse. Um, so it's really hard to get an accurate picture of what life is like in Kherson City right now. Um, what we do know is that after this surprise, somewhat of a surprise announcement from Russia that they were withdrawing from Kherson City and the area around it on the, the, the right bank, as they call it, the western side of the Dnieper uh, River, that um, in the last 24 hours or so we've seen uh, kind of a flurry of movement where the Ukrainian military is now moving into uh, villages that have been abandoned or, you know, fighting the Russian forces for control of villages. And so suddenly the front line, which has been rather static for the last two or three weeks, is moving and moving really fast. And so, you know, I spoke to a Ukrainian military official uh, tonight who said that he thinks, uh, hopes that they'll be in Kherson City in a matter of a couple of days. And right now it appears that they're about 10 to 15 kilometers uh, away from Harrison City. So they're getting really close. So going from uh, fairly static over a couple of weeks to rapid advancement, can the Ukrainian uh, army in that region, can they sustain that kind of advance? Can they keep on the march or are they going to outstrip their supply chain and uh, basically have to consolidate because the weather is going to change and that's going to change the strategy for everybody? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the weather is a big factor here because the winter is coming. Uh, the muddy uh, terrain is getting worse by the day, and that prevents a lot of, you know, uh, wheeled, like, trucks, you know, anything with wheels, even four-wheel drive from really moving uh, and, and conducting an offensive. So uh, that's a great point, but also the river itself. You know, as Russia retreats over the river, some of the bridges have already been destroyed. Other ones are being destroyed currently by the Russians as they retreat. 
so um, there's a real question about, you know, if Ukraine even has the capability to push across the river, um, you know, can they get across? And getting across, will they expose themselves uh, to, um, you know, fire from the Russians on the other side, where we hear they are, you know, pretty well entrenched. They've essentially been planning uh, this retreat for quite some time. And so it appears that they have put in quite a lot of fortifications and they are fairly successfully, it seems so far, pulling their equipment back. So we're not seeing them lose huge amounts of weaponry like they did in Kharkiv region uh, a few months ago uh, when the Ukrainians swept through there. So it's really uh, an open question whether Ukraine will be able to keep on pushing the Russians back or, as you say, if we'll have a bit of a a pause uh, here coming up once they uh, take Kherson City, if they take Kherson City, uh, during the winter when things get really frigid and it becomes hard to to conduct any type of offensive. Michael uh, Miller with the uh, Washington Post. I really appreciate your uh, on-the-ground perspective. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. The weather always a massive factor in wars in Ukraine. They're going into the muddy season, and in the muddy season, nobody really gets to move uh, very far, very fast. But they do get to move faster and further once it gets cold enough that the ground freezes. But of course, then you're facing the cold as one of your major opponents, no matter what flag you carry on your backpack. We'll be back in a moment with Risking It All. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. And it's that time of the day when we get to talk science with our favorite CDV science and technology specialist, Dr. Dan Riskin. Dan, welcome back to News Talk I'm- Today. I'm really your favorite CTV science and news uh, specialist. Hands That's, down, uh, of all the CTV science and technology specialists that I know of, you are the number one. Oh, yeah. Still got it. That's there great. You go. Um, this one is interesting. I've, uh, uh, I don't fly very much anymore, but I remember actually walking sort of shoulder to shoulder down a, a backcountry airport doing what's called a FOD check looking for foreign objects that could damage an airplane. And the one thing that you never find when you're doing a FOD check are birds because they move out of the way. But I know that birds cause billions of dollars worth of damage uh, to aircraft every year, mostly on takeoffs and landings, when, of course, the airplane is coming down close to the ground where most of the birds are. Uh, Uh But they also result in death. And so it is a major trouble for airports. I've seen shotguns set up to fire, you know, make noises. I know a guy personally in Winnipeg whose business is uh, rescuing injured peregrines and and falcons, raptors, and then rehabilitating them. And then he makes money by going to airports and letting them fly around just to scare birds away. But you're really? saying science has a better answer. Well, nothing's better than a peregrine falcon, but uh, science has a different answer that's maybe less risky for peregrine falcons. And you're right. I mean, uh, I think the number is somewhere around 1.8 billion Canadian dollars every year is spent by uh, different 
members of the airline industry trying to deal with the fact that birds keep hitting airplanes or airplanes keep hitting birds. And uh, the miracle on the Hudson yeah. uh, wouldn't have happened. Uh, you can say it's great because it's a miracle, but I think everybody agrees nobody wanted the plane to come down in the river in the first place. That was because of bird strikes. And so, you you know, it's a big deal. And, uh, and airports spend a lot of energy, you know, making the habitat around an airport not so nice for birds. You know, like all the trees, they, they keep them a good distance away so that you don't have a bunch of birds roosting in the trees uh, nearby. Uh, they try making loud noises. They play what are called alarm calls of birds. So you play the sounds of birds or something that sounds like birds having a very bad time. And hopefully birds won't like that noise. But birds habituate to that. They hear it and they're like, okay, I've been hearing that for the last month. I, I don't think it's there's really anybody having trouble, just like they habituate to scarecrows. So here's the punchline. Researchers have built a remote-controlled airplane that looks like a peregrine falcon. It's rad. It goes 50 kilometers an hour. It's got little propellers on the wrists, so it doesn't flap its wings like a peregrine falcon. But honestly, when a peregrine falcon's really going, it doesn't flap its wings very much either. It's like a fighter jet. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so this thing just flies around uh, towards the birds, and somebody's controlling it with a sort of a headset on so they can see from the perspective of the bird, which would be so fun. And they take this thing out there, they fly it around the airport, scare the birds away, and it works faster than uh, flying a drone, better than playing loud noises of birds. And the best part is the birds don't seem to habituate to it. They tried this for three months at this airport in the Netherlands. And uh, the birds, once they got scared away, did like they were still scared of it the fourth, fifth time uh, that they pulled this thing out. So it, it really works. It really taps into the fear centers of these birds. And it might be a solution for places like Pearson Airport or any airport in Canada to keep birds away from the runways and keep people safe. That's fascinating. I mean, how and how often did you like? Did they say how often they had to do this? Because you couldn't be doing it all the time. And another threat to airplanes at airports these days are drones. I mean, how is this yeah. not part of the problem? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I think the idea here is you could be in communication with a control tower. So if you had a problem of birds on the runway, you could, you know, set up a time that it's safe for this thing to fly or make sure the airplanes are, are being held back. Or it could be used in the periphery, just keeping birds at a distance. And, you know, it's a little trait. This is good if you have a big flock of birds that you need to move. And they've got some compelling video that go with the uh, scientific paper describing this, uh, where they show a big flock of, I, th I think they're starlings, just getting sort of herded away hmm. and moved away from the airport. So it's nice that way. If you've got like a, a lone blue jay, it's not going to be as effective. But, you know, it's a start. And a big flock of birds is much harder to miss with an airplane than just a lone blue jay. So uh, that's a good start. But this thing flies for about 15 minutes at a go so you know like most drones it runs out of batteries pretty quick um but that's enough to sort of move the flock that you're dealing with and then park it until another flock shows up that you need to move that is cool and what a fun job oh what do you do i fly a falcon yeah there you go yeah uh, research out of McGill University says that you don't have to hear the music to have it influence your dancing style this is fascinating this is fascinating. And uh, this is actually, uh, I, I may have miscommunicated when I said McGill. This is actually out of McMaster. Uh, I misread. It says right in front of me, McMaster, now that I look at it. All good. There you it's go. all good. But the reason I make a big deal about that is because McMaster is unique. They have this really, really cool facility called Live Lab. And it's basically like a concert venue, but it's got motion tracking and it's got really fancy dancey speakers that can control frequencies very specifically. And they've done really cool things there like having musicians play together or jam together 
together and then looking at how their bodies move and, and measuring the synchronicity between different people on the on the stage and stuff like that. Here, they were looking at dance music. So they invited a whole bunch of undergrads to come to uh, listen to a one hour dance music show and they played live dance music. They had the lights off. They had like the strobe lights and all the stuff. They had about 100 students at this thing, 133 students dancing away to this concert uh, with live electronic music by a group called Orphix. And uh, and it was great, but uh, about 60 of those students were wearing these headbands that measured how much they were dancing. And while this hour-long concert was happening, unbeknownst to the students who were dancing, uh, the researchers were flicking on and off a very special set of speakers called very low-frequency speakers. And these play at frequencies that are so low that you cannot hear them. They are below the frequencies that humans can hear, and they followed up by playing these frequencies to students to make sure it really they couldn't hear it. They couldn't. Uh, but when they switched on the, the the speakers that don't make noises you can hear, people danced more. So out of those hmm. 60 or so people that were being measured, when the when you compare their activity levels when this when this thing is on versus when it's off, there ninety percent of them have increased dance. And can on they average feel it? About, well, they must feel it. When you play it for them over headphones, they say they can't notice anything. But in on the dance floor, there's something that just motivates them to get going. I mean, it, they weren't walking around with surveys asking people, why are you moving like that right, right. now? They just sort of let them go. And, and it would switch on for two and a half minutes, switch off for two and a half minutes, switch on for two and a half minutes, switch off for two and a half minutes, right through the hour-long experiment. And so they have these nice divided uh, you know, sequences where they could take a look. And it's, it's so cool. People, So this vibration is low enough that you cannot hear it. But presumably, you can feel it in your bones or That's feel cool. it in your vestibular system or something. And so is it that you feel like you're already moving and you want to dance with that? Or is it that you feel like it, it hits your your percept your vestibular system inside your ears so that you feel like the world is kind of rocking a little bit and that makes you want to dance? They don't know the answer to that. But it's pretty freaking cool that you can <laughs> flick a switch on something people can't even hear and it makes the party 10% cooler. I wonder if it would make me a better dancer. We'll have to do a further study to find that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, I think it would. I Dan, definitely think it would. Dan Riskin, Riskin at all. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. The pleasure's all mine. Take care. It's interesting because fire departments are using very low frequency. They call them, I think, growlers or rumblers uh, on their fire engines because they emit this super low frequency noise that it gets the attention of drivers in front of them and is very uncomfortable. And it gets their attention despite all the music that they're listening to in their cars or on their headphones and tells them, get out of the way. We're trying to come through. My name is Mark Tui. This is News Talk today. Thanks for your time. Thanks to Andrew Pinson for producing the show. Thanks to Tony Tedesco for making it appear in your ear holes. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>